Thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara-Byrne. Tonight, legal history was made today in Manhattan as Donald Trump became the first former or sitting president to be arrested and charged with a crime, pleading not guilty to 34 charges of falsifying business documents. We look at how the day unfolded and how strong the case against him really is. And while there was no mugshot taken of the former president, he was fingerprinted. We look into the fascinating history of the modern mugshot. You know, it dates all the way back to 19th century France. NATO celebrated its 74th birthday today with a big moment, welcoming Finland as the 31st member of the military alliance. It more than doubles NATO's land border with Russia. And for Canada, it means a new Arctic nation in the fold will look at the impact. A new report by the World Health Organization shows that roughly one in six people around the world will suffer from infertility, a rate that is consistent around the globe. What is being done here in Canada and should we be doing more? But first, it's been a whirlwind few days for Canadian astronaut Jeremy Hansen. The 47-year-old was named yesterday as a member of NASA's Artemis II lunar mission. He will become the first Canadian, the first non-American to orbit the moon in November of 2024. What must it be like to be in his shoes right now, he tells us. Well, NASA certainly know how to put on a show. Here's a little bit of the video they released to promote and to inform about who had been selected for their Artemis II lunar mission. I'm Christina Cook. I'm a mission specialist. I'm Jeremy Hansen. I'm a mission specialist. I'm Victor Glover. I'm the pilot. I'm Reed Wiseman. I'm the commander of the Artemis II mission to the moon. To the moon. To the moon. To the moon. Yeah, you have to see it. It was like something out of a Jerry Bruckheimer movie, but it's certainly very, very compelling. And you can understand it's been a very busy 36 hours for Canadian astronaut Jeremy Hansen. The 47-year-old from London, Ontario, took to the stage at the Johnson Space Centre in Houston yesterday morning to be introduced as part of the crew of four for NASA's Artemis II mission, which will orbit the moon. A journey set to launch in November 2024. It will be the furthest and fastest traveling crewed spaceflight in history and the first crewed mission to the moon since the final Apollo mission took flight all the way back in 1972, so more than 50 years ago now. After orbiting Earth, the crew will rocket hundreds of thousands of kilometers for a figure eight around the moon before momentum brings them back to Earth. Now, Hansen admits it's been a very long journey from his upbringing, including on a farm near Ingersoll, Ontario, to becoming a colonel in the Canadian Armed Forces, an F-18 fighter pilot, and then being selected all the way back in 2009 to be part of the Canadian Space Agency's astronaut program. He's yet to travel to space. This will be a first for him as well. And he admits that he's standing on the shoulders of decades of Canadian ingenuity and innovation. Here's what he had to say on stage in Houston yesterday. Our scientists, our engineers, the Canadian Space Agency, the Canadian Armed Forces, across government, all of our leadership working together under a vision to take step by step. And all of those have added up to this moment where a Canadian is going to the moon with our international partnership. And it is glorious. 
It certainly is. Hansen joins Americans Reed Wiseman, Victor Glover, and Christina Cook. Rather, in doing so, he will become the first Canadian, the first non-American, to travel into deep space. The goal of NASA's Artemis program is to put a man and woman on the moon in 2025 in service of the ultimate goal, which is to send astronauts to Mars. You can only imagine how earth-shaking that news would be to be part of Artemis II, even for someone who spent decades working towards yesterday. Now, he's had, again, as I mentioned, a very busy schedule, but I managed to get some time with Jeremy Hansen this morning from Houston. And I, of course, started by congratulating him on being selected. Oh, thanks for having me. I appreciate that. Has it, has it hit home yet? I mean, yesterday was such an event. It must have been such a whirlwind for you. I don't think it's hit home. I think it is, has been, it's definitely been a whirlwind. Just, you know, very, very excited about all of this. It's so cool. Uh, for me personally, but mostly just feeling a lot of pride uh, for Canada. Super proud of what Canada has done. All of the steps to get here have been significant. They didn't happen like recently. They've happened over decades. And uh, I'm just left with this immense sense of pride. Yeah, you're carrying the torch for a lot of people over many, many decades who helped uh, Apollo and beyond help space in Canada, period. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, that's why I'm so proud because I, I have had like a front row seat to how hard this truly is and how you have to have a big long-term vision that people can, can gather around and stick to. And this is just, you know, this is celebrating a huge win for us really because it just very visually demonstrates, all right, Canada, Everything you've been working on is really starting to add up and have an impact. And we're already doing amazing things on the International Space Station. And now we're bringing so much value. Canada's going to the moon. And we're actually going to be the second country in the world to send a human um, beyond low Earth orbit and out to the moon. That's extraordinary. What must it be like to be the person to wear that flag, though? I mean, for you, what a what a what a thrill! I mean, you must be there. Must be some trepidation too. I mean, this is a long journey. Um, you know, there there it's 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 groundbreaking. Yeah, I I guess I deal with that just by being focused. And we, you know, there's always pressure uh, in this job working with the Canadian Space Agency. You know, working in the Air Force is like that too. And so I just sort of pivot away from any of that feeling of weight and just sort of look at it as, okay, let's go. Like, let's just get after it. And uh, I'm just going to do my best. And that's just going to have to be good enough. I have an extraordinary team of people backing me up and making uh, making this possible. So I feel really well supported. What was it like to, to see? I mean, I was watching it uh, online to see the flag up there, to see the Canadian flag up there, to see you get on stage with the Canadian flag on your on your shoulder and so on. I mean, it was it was a real proud moment, I think, for a lot of us to watch. But to be there and to remember back to the Cold War and just how American NASA was, how much of a part of the Cold War it was to see another country up on that stage must have been a must have been a real thrill for you, too. It really was. And the reason is, I mean, I think. I was talking about it yesterday. The United States has very strategically decided to include an international collaboration and in going back to the moon. I think that is tremendous leadership. But what was really special about yesterday, if you were there and if you know the people here, like it was very real. Like they weren't just forced to do this because it was the right thing to do. I felt like they were happy that we were there with them. That felt very genuine to me. And, uh, and to all of us that experience that, that's awesome. That really is awesome for Canada. Like we're really in this together. This international partnership will expand. There'll be other countries flying to the moon in the future. Um, and we're just so proud to be a part of that. 
Tell me a bit about the, the purpose of Artemis II, uh, what, what you will you be doing, and also just what Artemis II will mean in terms of the whole Artemis program. So, yeah, so Artemis is a campaign of missions to take humanity back to the moon. Part of the Artemis program is building a station around the moon called Gateway. Canada is part of that as well. So Artemis II is just the next step. We already had Artemis One. It was a it was on-crewed mission. We tested the, the vehicle and the capsule with, you know, remote commanding it. And now we're going to put humans on it. So we're adding the life support systems for the first time. We're adding the manual control systems for the first time. We're going to actually have to go and fly it and see how it flies, like looking out the window and trying to fly and dock to another object. We're going to do some of that testing uh, while we're on this mission. And we're just paving the way, buying down the risk for Artemis three, where uh, we'll send humans to the surface of the moon. So that's an important aspect of it. But bigger than that, you know, truly for me, this is about setting big goals as a country, as a as a human race, uh, goals big enough to bring us together to you know basically accomplish the seemingly impossible. That's what I think Artemis II needs to be a very visual example of that for all of us and a reminder that we can do great things. Let's focus on doing great things instead of some of the, um, you know, some of the things that are dragging us down these days on the on the planet. Yeah, I, I mean, you're going to be going very fast and very far. People forget the ISS, the International Space Station is actually not that far from Earth. Uh, the moon, on the other hand, this is a long journey and you're going to be traveling at speeds never seen before. Yes, it's true. Um, you know, the, an easy way to think about it is it's about a thousand times further than the International Space Station. So the International Space Station is 400 kilometers above the surface of the planet, and the moon is roughly 400,000 kilometers away. It's going to be a long trip. And uh, luckily, we will be going super fast, so it won't take too, too long uh, to get out to the moon and back. I mean, you must have gotten a ton of reaction yesterday. What was what was it like? What did your family say? What were some of the things you heard that you thought, wow, that this is really... This is really coming true now. My my family was there. Uh, my my parents, my wife, my children were were there at the announcement yesterday. Uh, I could see big smiles on their faces, so that meant a lot to me. And they just seemed to be really caught up in it, which is special for me. And they've been living this space journey with me for a long time. They they understand this space program. They understand how much value is in it, how much I believe in that, and, you know, in the core of my being that I think it's important for humanity to do these things. And they, they're part of it. They feel part of it and they're proud and they're excited. Um, so that's, that's important to me. You know, I, I've having spent time at the CSA and talked to other people, I know that sort of being out front and being in the public eye is part of the job. And I know, in fact, I was looking back to when you qualified back in 2009, how rigorous that qualification you and David Sejac went through and how everyone else goes through the same. But it must be tough to find yourself thrust into the public. I mean, you're kind of the face of this mission now for Canada. And that must be both a, both a great privilege, but also comes with some pressure. Yes, I think it, it absolutely does. You know, it's important to me to do that well for Canada. Definitely, it is part of the job. I think I'm, I'm fortunate in that I have been doing this for a while. I've been an astronaut since, since 2009. I've worked with the agency for a long time now. And, you know, that, that's been part of my basic development um, over time, kind of preparing for this moment. And so I guess I just sort of look at it as it just is. And let's just keep going. I'm not too, too worried about it. I feel, you know, I trust Canada. I trust Canada to, to support me, to help me on this journey. And, uh, and I know we're going to be successful.
I, it was interesting to see Chris Hadfield react to uh, the announcement yesterday, because I know that that back when you were still at RMC, he was one of the ones who sort of said, you know, put your put your mind to this. And one day anything is possible. And here you are. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Chris has been uh, a great mentor for me for a long time. I did have a chance to meet him early on my university days, and, and that was very influential on me. So I've always appreciated that. And then since I joined the core, like to an astronaut, to a former astronaut, they've all um, been really intentional about staying in touch, uh, mentoring us, giving us advice. We have we try to have an astronaut reunion every year now. It's really well attended, and uh, just a chat about you know the lessons from the past, so we don't have to relearn them. So I'm really appreciative of the entire core uh, for how they have uh, supported me. What would have seven, eight-year-old Jeremy Hansen thought of 47-year-old Jeremy Hansen standing on that stage yesterday? Do you remember back that far to your first dreams of space and the moon and all that represents to, to a young person? That's a really interesting question. No one's asked me that one. Um, seven-year-old Jeremy would be shocked because <laughs> seven-year-old Jeremy was not didn't have the confidence uh, to do this type of work. He really didn't and wouldn't have believed, wouldn't have truly believed it was possible. You know, he wouldn't have imagined all the steps that would have to happen to get to this point and that he would have, he would have been capable of doing it. But, you know, seven-year-old Jeremy was naive enough to, to just say he wanted to do it and to tell other people. And eventually it was all those contributions, all that mentoring, all that guidance that over time prepared me to be where I am now and fully equipped to go do this mission on behalf of Canada. Well, Jeremy, we'll all be in your corner. We'll all be watching. Thank you so much for your time today. Yeah, thank you. You have a good day. A new report out today really caught my eye from the World Health Organization because it painted a pretty clear picture of the issue of infertility around the world. And I say that because it's not an issue we talk about a lot, although it affects a huge number of people. Now, this study was based on about 100 studies carried out between 1990 and 2021. It reveals that more than roughly Roughly one in six people will experience infertility at some point in their lifetime. For the purposes of that report, the WHO defined it as a disease of the male or female reproductive system defined by the failure to achieve a pregnancy after 12 months or more of regular unprotected sex that can cause significant distress, stigma, financial hardship, affecting people's mental and psychosocial well-being. It's the first such report in more than a decade from the World Health Organization. It also shows that rates are comparable around the world for high, middle, and low-income countries, suggesting that it is a problem that needs to be addressed in every part of the world. This is Pascal Alotti. She's the WHO's Director of Reproductive Health and Research. WHO is calling for greater policy prioritization of infertility, we're calling for greater access to infertility services, and we're calling for greater evidence, better evidence to be able to address the um, treatment issues. And the global stats are pretty consistent with the ones released by the Public Health Agency of Canada that show that approximately one in six couples in this country are in fact, are affected by infertility. Well, joining me now with more on this is fertility doctor, Dr. Caitlin Dunn with the Pacific Center for Reproductive Medicine and a clinical associate professor at UBC. Dr. Dunn, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me, Ben. So this this report is very broad. I mean, it covers a huge swath of territory, but the findings are pretty consistent right around the world. What did you make of it? I thought as a fertility doctor, on the one hand, it was not a surprise in the sense that we are seeing 
at PCRM a significant increase in the demand for fertility services. Um, but it was very interesting and quite striking that about 17% of people across the globe will experience infertility in their lifetime. And I think what that does is help us to get a sense of really the magnitude and the scale of this problem so that we can start to address it. And as I was, I was looking through the stats, the situation in Canada is quite consistent with those numbers. Yes, we typically say that about one in six people will experience infertility. And one of the most common things that I hear as a misconception is that this is a woman's problem. And unfortunately, right. that leads to a lot of stigma and shame for women, when in fact, about 30 to 50 percent of infertility is a male factor problem. So when we come to the table to talk about this, I really think it's important that we talk both about the sperm and the eggs as driving factors that are leading to this, this increase in infertility. Right. And just to talk about it broadly, because I think it's been mentioned many times, including in this report, that in many societies, it lingers in the shadows, right? People don't like to talk about it. Absolutely. I mean, when we don't talk about infertility and miscarriage, um, it leads to isolation. And that means I see a lot of my patients suffering in silence. And when you're in a partnership, it can be stressful for both partners. And sometimes that makes it difficult to lean on one another. And when you don't have the help of society, and that can be friends and family, that can be your employer, um, then it can be even harder to deal with the infertility or miscarriage and the ramifications that come from that, both physical you know, and emotional. I sense we're talking a bit more about it now that it has it has emerged a little bit, but it feels very slow going. I mean, this is I was reading interviews you'd given years ago about this, and it doesn't feel like things have changed all that fast. Yeah, I, I would say you know we are making progress. Um, the media can be really powerful in this way, and I appreciate you talking about it tonight. We've seen celebrities like you know the Kardashians or Chrissy Teigen or you know Brooke Shields, even Jimmy Fallon, people like that have talked about infertility and miscarriage and their struggles. And I think that does in some ways make it a little bit more um, palatable for other people to come forward and sort of share their stories in the public sphere. But it's obviously very individual. Everyone's experience of infertility and miscarriage is very, very individual. And so we need to find ways that can support people, whether they choose to share their stories publicly or not. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you see this firsthand, right? I mean, you, you see it up close. It must be, it must be very, it depend on the couple, depend on the circumstances. There must be so many factors that, that, that go into how each and every person and couple struggles with this. Oh, absolutely. I mean, when we approach fertility treatments, every case is individual. And the most important thing to understand is whether that individual or whether that couple um, you know, wants to pursue something like fertility treatment or whether they're just looking for support and sort of meeting them where they are, really taking what we call in medicine a patient-centric focus, um, keeping in mind that infertility is a disease and it's absolutely worthy of treatment. Um, and like I say, this study is so helpful because now there's more awareness of the scope of the problem and hopefully that means we're going to be able to devote more to, to treating it. Yeah, the WHO mentioned in the report as well that one of the issues they're having, perhaps not as much in North America or Canada, but one of the issues they have worldwide is simply a lack of data. They don't really understand, enough, still, even though, even though it's classified as a disease, they still don't understand as much about it and how it varies or how it's similar around the world as they would like to. 
That's right. And it's probably, um, you know, it was outside of the scope of, of this particular report to comment on the different causes of fertility. But I think it's fair to say that the causes would vary worldwide. So, for example, um, in some parts of the world, you might see um, particularly infectious diseases like tuberculosis right. can affect the fallopian tubes. That is not so much of an issue in North America. What we see here, like I said, with male factor infertility, but also uh, women are having children later in life. So we see issues related to ovarian aging, and that's as a result of you know, contraception access, um, difficulty meeting a partner, women are getting more education, career pursuits. But all of these things are different in our society than in various places around the world. But what we're seeing globally as a result of this report is that it affects everybody, and it's, it's a significant problem. Right. I mean, I mean, one of the things that was brought up specifically for, for middle and lower income countries, but it's, it's not that much different here, is just how expensive uh, treatment can be and prohibitive for many. Yeah, unfortunately, it's heartbreaking when some couples um, or individuals need fertility treatment and they're not able to access it. I'm sure you can imagine that it would be so difficult to long for a family and not be able to afford the treatment that you need in order to make that happen. Yeah, I, I was, we were just doing a story last night on, on the demographic issues in Japan and how, how much, you know, they're struggling with a very low birth rate. And it seems in, particularly important in a country like Canada to, for those who want to have children to try to find ways to support them. Yeah, absolutely. There are two prongs to this. We are seeing that some provinces in Canada, like Quebec and Ontario, do offer funding for some aspects of fertility treatments. Manitoba is one province, for example, that offers a tax credit. Where uh, PCRM operates um, in Alberta and British Columbia, there's, um, tr- there is public funding for the workup, which is diagnosing the cause of the infertility. But when it comes to infertility treatments, those are private pay. And so some people are fortunate to have things like private insurance, maybe through their employer, and increasingly, I think employers are recognizing the importance of fertility benefits to their, um, to their team members. But um, some people are paying entirely out of pocket. Uh, Dr. Dunn, one of the things you pointed out, I think, during the last federal election campaign was that you wanted to see more from the federal government on this front to try to make up for some of the patchwork you were describing earlier where different provinces approach uh, helping uh, those with infertility in different ways. Uh, how sporadic is the coverage here in this country? Well, I think across the country, it's fair to say that there is good coverage for the investigation of infertility, which is to say that when you see your doctor or a fertility specialist like me, the blood test, ultrasound, consultation, follow-up visits, those would all be covered uh, by provincially funded healthcare systems. However, when it comes to actually treating infertility, often we have to resort to things like insemination or IUI, or in vitro fertilization, test tube babies, or otherwise called IVF. Mm-hmm. And outside of Quebec and Ontario, again, with the exception of a potentially a tax credit in Manitoba, um, to my knowledge, there's, there's no coverage for those actual treatments. And you've been wanting to, you mean, you've been calling on change for quite a while now. We haven't, and we're not seeing it. Is it in the works? Well, as a doctor, my position is that infertility is a disease and it's absolutely worthy of treatment. Uh, The WHO in this report that you mentioned does say that fertility is a human right and all people of age should have the right to marry and have children if they so choose. 
So um, I think doctors across this province uh, will continue to advocate for fertility treatment services. But, you know, what's happening behind closed doors, I, I don't have any insight there. Yeah. I mean, I mean, you you at one point where I think you had mentioned, and this was an article, I think, that was about uh, the federal election, and you were suggesting that specifically in British Columbia, but that people put a little more pressure on their federal uh, electoral candidates to try to see if this can't be pushed up a little bit on people's priority lists. It would be nice to see a more consistent model of coverage for fertility treatments across Canada. Certainly, I do have patients say to me in my office, oh, you know, if I was in Ontario, then this procedure would be covered. Um, And to some Canadians, they tell me that feels unfair. Yeah, I, I mean, I guess there's. It's up to each and every province to 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 address this in the way they see fit, right? I mean, that's that's part of the issue. But do you think this WHA WHO report will have any impact on this conversation? Because it is. I mean, there was a lot of coverage of it out there today. It feels like it it really painted a very clear picture of what the issue is right around the world. But also, it, it encourages countries such as Canada to look at their individual situations to see what can be improved. Right. Well, I mean. The first thing we need to do is measure it. So at least that what this report does is give us some scope of the magnitude of the problem. And then hopefully, um, you know, whoever uh, administers the, the treatments or the uh, whoever administers the, um, the funding around the world can take a look at their healthcare systems and say, okay, in our particular country, how can we help individuals that are suffering with infertility? Because um, clearly it's a problem that's prevalent globally. And um, in my experience, at least here in British Columbia, it seems to be on the rise. It doesn't seem to be something that's going to be getting better on its own. Really? You're seeing more of it, in other words, even in the, in the last little while? Yeah, certainly over the past three to five years, our experience mm. at PCRM has there's been a significant increase in the demand for fertility services. What I focus on as, as a fertility doctor is first and foremost public education. I think too few of us understand our fertility as we go through, say, high school and university and our education. I think part of making your your plan for your life, maybe where you're going to live or what you're going to study, part of that is, you know, do I want to have a family and kind of thinking about that in the background and making a plan for it. Because too often, especially women who were born with all the eggs they're ever going to have, um, come to desire a family and then by that time, the eggs, when they're older, may not work as well, and they may struggle with infertility and miscarriage. And I think we could rewind and say, okay, where should we start to talk about this as a public health issue? And we could start with education. Yeah, it, it does feel like a subject that we sort of talk about a bit in high school at that age where they're basically trying to prevent you from getting into trouble, and then we stop talking about it all together. Right. I have a lot of patients, actually, who will come in my office and say, well, yeah, in high school, I was taught that if I have unprotected sex once, I'll get pregnant. So all I've done my whole life is try not to get pregnant. And now here I am, I want to get pregnant more than anything, and I can't. And there is a piece lacking there about, you know, the chances of pregnancy, how how when we get older, you know, the, the best ways to optimize your body for conception, the right time of the month to conceive to conceive, um, things like vitamins, supplements, op- optimizing male fertility. I mean, obviously you can tell this is a, a subject I'm really passionate about. Yes, of um, But there's a lot of education that we could do around those areas that would help, um, you know, and, and, and that can be done um, without even, you know, hopefully to prevent the need for even fertility treatments. 
Yeah, I, I mean, I know, I know this was sort of outside the writ of what we were talking about. But what are some of the very quick, quick advice that you give to people out there who may not know? Because you're right, you've tapped into an area where I think a lot of people think they know things that they don't really know. There's a lot of, you know, sort of myths and things out there that that people believe that are that probably aren't quite true. Right. Well, there was actually a study done by researchers of UBC undergraduates published in a journal called Fertility and Sterility. And it was interesting because they surveyed female undergraduates. And what they found, you know, in summary was that the female undergraduates, many of them um, expressed a strong desire to have children in their lifetime, but they significantly overestimated their chances of conception as they get older. So I think if there was one thing I'd like to speak to for all people with ovaries is to say that, you know, because you are born with all of the eggs that you're ever going to have, as you get older, those eggs decrease in quality and in quantity. So if having a family is something that you're thinking about, really having an idea where you're at, say, as you enter your early 30s, is a good time to maybe check in with your doctor, check in with your fertility specialist and talk about where you're at and what the options might be. And for those without? Uh, for those people without ovaries, you mean? Indeed, yes. Uh, there must be, I mean, as you said, men need to talk about this too, right? We're at least half the problem. Absolutely. <laughs> half the problem, half the solution. So, um, yes. yeah, so for people for people with sperm, um, I mean, sperm is regenerated about every 70 days. So sperm doesn't have the same issue when it comes to aging, but certainly things can impact male fertility. Um we are seeing more lifestyle factors. So what you consume in your diet, carrying excess body weight, things like diabetes can certainly um, affect your fertility. And then we are seeing significant impacts in studies from things like smoking um, and drug and alcohol use. So to optimize the male fertility, I think starting with those things as a basic, uh, as a basic start would be a, a good place. Well, Dr. Dunn, thank you so much for, uh, for educating us tonight. Much appreciated. My pleasure to be here, and thanks for talking about this subject. Afternoon, Donald Trump was arraigned on a New York Supreme Court indictment, returned by a Manhattan grand jury on 34 felony counts of falsifying business records in the first degree. Under New York state law, it is a felony to falsify business records with intent to defraud and an intent to conceal another crime. That is exactly what this case is about. 34 false statements made to cover up other crimes. These are felony crimes in New York State. No matter who you are, we cannot and will not normalize serious criminal conduct. That was Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg speaking earlier today. A very unhappy-looking former President Donald Trump appeared in a Manhattan courtroom this afternoon. He pleaded not guilty to 34 felony criminal charges of falsifying business records. It is the first time in history that a current or former U.S. president has been criminally charged, the culmination of a five-year investigation. He faced a judge in that Manhattan courtroom today in a case that really hinges on allegations over hush money payments allegedly paid to women who say they had sexual affairs 
affairs with him, specifically uh, Stormy Daniels in the lead up to the 2016 election. Uh, there were no cameras allowed in the courtroom, so we didn't see much of what, what happened other than a few photographs that were taken beforehand, including one of a very unhappy looking former president. Um, falsifying business records is typically a misdemeanor in New York State, but it can be elevated to a felony if prosecutors can prove it was done in furtherance of another crime, such as campaign finance violations. Now, Trump has denied the affairs ever took place or that he knew about the alleged hush money payments. And late today, he flew back after he appeared in court. He flew back from LaGuardia in Queens, back to Mar-a-Lago, where, um, and, and he delivered. He delivered a very long, well, half an hour, not that long by his standards. But he did uh, lay out his case, sort of. Here's what he had to say. Spend time there today, as you possibly read, with a local failed district attorney charging a former president of the United States for the first time in history on a basis that every single pundit and legal analyst said, there is no case. There's no case. They kept saying, there's no case. Yeah, I don't know about every single pundit and legal analyst. We'll check in with one now. Jessica Henry is a professor in the Department of Justice Studies at Montclair State University. About 30 kilometers, if I look, did this right, and this is in kilometers, Jessica, welcome to the show. It's about 30 kilometers from downtown Manhattan or 18 miles, right? That's right. That's right. We're just over the Lincoln, across the Lincoln Tunnel. Wow. So you were close. I mean, what a day. Uh, you know, it was hard to, because of all the, you know, the circus-like atmosphere that often surrounds the former president, it was hard to, it's easy to forget sometimes that this was history in the making, perhaps not great history, but it was still uh, legal history being made. What did you make of, of how everything unfolded today? Well, things unfolded the way that most folks anticipated they would. Um, the president was given some preferential, the former president <laughs> was given preferential treatment given his former status as the leader of the United States um, and given the fact that he was surrounded by service, Secret Service protection. Um, he was brought in through sort of a back door. He was fingerprinted. They did not take a formal mugshot of him. And then he was led through the back hallways of the courtroom into the courtroom. So he didn't have to sort of do the walk that many other people who are charged with criminal behavior have to do. He was not in handcuffs, um, but he was brought in and he had to face and has to face some fairly serious felony charges against him. What did you make? I mean, there was so much parsing of the indictment, and I realized that it was a pretty bare-bones indictment. It listed the 34 charges, what they were related to, but there was a statement of fact in there as well that's that's longer, mm-hmm. it's uh, several pages, that sort of outlines what they suspect. So what do we know about the case now? Well, we we continue to know that the allegations are based on the payment, the, the way that he recorded the payments um, that he made to Michael Cohen, who was reimbursing... Stormy Daniels, um, I mean, who paid Stormy Daniels and then, you know, he was reimbursing um, Michael Cohen for those payments. Sorry, that was not the most clear explanation. But what No, but it's it's a complicated case, right? Yeah. It is complicated. And and what we do know, though, is that in general, um, falsifying business records is a misdemeanor. And so for them to bring felony charges, they had to make the case that falsifying those business records was done to cover up other crimes. Um, And that becomes the big question because those other crimes aren't specified in the indictment. As you said, it was pretty bare bones. Um, And the statement of facts adds some color, as did um, Bragg's statement at a subsequent press conference um, that kind of clued us into what those 
other crimes might have been that were being, you know, concealed. Um, but it's not entirely certain which avenue the DA is going to pursue at this moment. Yeah, I mean, I gather just from all the coverage, having watched a lot of the coverage today, there weren't any, there was nothing new in there. I mean, there was so much speculation going in to what might be into in this indictment above and beyond the sort of whole notion of, of payments made to keep bad stories out of the press in the lead up to the uh to the election and then what was done afterwards. But really, that, that was it. That was, that's what's in there. That's what's in there. That's what's in there. And there has been, as you said, lots of speculation. So, again, to make this a felony, um, it, Bragg is going to have to prove that President Trump uh, made these falsified his business records to conceal other crimes. And that could range from, you know, campaign finance crime violations um, and campaign finance violations, um, elect New York election law violations. It could even possibly be about New York tax fraud. Um, but all of that is yet to be seen. It was interesting, and I found it interesting that the DA mentioned, of course, given where he was standing, you know, in the financial hub of the world, really right not mm-hmm. too far from Wall, Wall Street, that he was trying to paint this as a white-collar crime. He's essentially saying, listen, this, is, this isn't about, you know, who Stormy Daniels is. This was about falsifying business records. And we, as the DA in Manhattan, we know these cases. Well, that's right. I mean, you know, if you if you're following along with this storyline, Bragg is making a very important argument, which is that no one is above the law. And if you're going to falsify business records and you get caught, you're going to be held accountable. And that's what Bragg is saying happened here. It you feels know, it's not, I mean, it's I'm not, not illegal. I, yeah. I'm sorry, it wasn't illegal, even though, you know, I think a lot of us feel super uncomfortable. It's not illegal necessarily to pay hush money, but it is illegal to then create a whole false narrative about what you did and put it in writing, which is what is the the basis of the allegation here. And those 34 charges are each sort of each check, each ledger ledger entry and so on, the, the trail essentially of these alleged payments. Yes. Exactly right. Each one of those charges um, involves a different entry, a different business record. So what do you make mm-hmm. of the case that just at first glance, I mean, you know, this stuff, is, is, it, is it solid? Does it feel solid? It does. It do- I mean, I have to say, I don't think Bragg would have brought these charges if he didn't feel confident in being able to prove them. And I think the misdemeanor aspect of the case is the falsifying business record is kind of a slam dunk. The question becomes, can you prove the second part, that it was used to conceal or cover up another crime. Um, And given the parade of witnesses that came into the indictment, one could infer that there is ample evidence to establish some of the um, some of these potential theories about whether the crime was done to cover up or conceal something else. Um, We'll have to see which one he pursues. But it does seem like just based on what we know um, Michael Cohen, for instance, was likely to have said in the grand jury and some of the statements he's made afterwards, um, including his own plea bargain um, in a related case. I think it's, it seems that there's plenty of evidence that will go to support this. I mean, Trump's team, of course, is going to make a lot of different arguments even before this case proceeds far down the road about the validity of the charges. Um, But we're going to have to wait and see how that all plays out once the motions start to get filed in the court. 
just day one today. But it went on a lot longer than expected. I think everyone was talking about half an hour, and it went on for a while. Do we have a clearer idea of what was going on in the courtroom that made this such a long process today? Well, as we know, no no cameras were there. Um, I mean, it mm-hmm. does take a while to go go through the uh, the proceedings, the the charges against them, to sort of lay out what is coming down the pike. I mean, the judge was also very clear with. Um, Trump that he is he was not he didn't issue a formal gag order but he did sort of caution him from inciting um, riots and violence um, you know and sort of cautioned him to temper his comments of course Trump went out and made a speech this evening that perhaps did not comport with the spirit of what the judge said so they had some no. I think administrative things they had to take care of in court today as well the highly unusual to bring in I mean obviously it's a, it's the first of its kind. Um, to have a former president come in, and it raises a lot of security concerns and logistical concerns for the courthouse um, that they have to kind of think about very carefully as they go forward with this case. Indictment together came out today. Everybody said this is not really an indictment. There's nothing here. My lawyers came to me and they said there's nothing here. They're not even saying what you did. The criminal is the district attorney because he illegally leaked massive amounts of grand jury information. For which he should be prosecuted, or at a minimum, he should resign. Yeah, that was Donald Trump at Mar-a-Lago tonight. Apparently, that was the uh, what he that was the one that got the biggest rise out of the crowd tonight. A very partisan crowd, obviously. Him calling, essentially accusing the uh, the district attorney Alvin Bragg of being corrupt. Right after he was told by a judge not six hours earlier, "Don't do that anymore." There was no gag order in place. Um, Jessica Henry is with us. She's a professor in the Department of Justice Studies at Montclair State University in Montclair, New Jersey, not far from Lower Manhattan. So, you know, there was no gag order. But what do you make of that? It sounds it sounds pretty. That sounds uh, it sounds like it crosses the line a little bit when it comes to someone who's under who's been just been arrested and charged in a, in a courtroom. Yeah, I mean, Trump's playing a very dangerous game, I think. He not only went over, you know, not only went after um, Bragg today, but he also has repeatedly made comments about the judge and the judge's family. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's not the first time he's gone after a district attorney. He's um, he went after Fannie Willis, who's the um, district attorney who's leading the inquiry. Um, into the election interference case down in Georgia. He's gone after the um, the person who's leading the charge in the federal um, investigations. And what why this is such a terrible and dangerous thing to do is that, you know, prosecutors are supposed to be ministers of justice. They're supposed to be immune from outside influence. And, you know, they're supposed to administer the law fairly and equitably, regardless of who the person is. And when Donald Trump goes after individual prosecutors um, like a pro- or even individual judges, what he's really doing is destabilizing the public's ability to trust government institutions. That's kind of his one of his trademark moves. It is. Um, it is. And that's Could a it- huge problem for the entire criminal legal system, right? Because if, if right. he is able to erode public trust, it stops feeling like legitimate institutions. Could it bite him in this case? Because he is, I mean, he's been arrested. He's been, he's been charged. He's sat in front of a judge and been told not to do this. And he's, I mean, I guess the line is pretty blurry, but, you know, he was admonished for this earlier and said, listen, don't, don't go out there and criticize. Don't put anyone in a situation where they could be under threat. 
Yes, but he the judge did not go so far as to issue a formal court order or a gag order saying don't talk about this case at all. Um, and so I think as of right now, Trump probably is on safe ground. But clearly, if I were the prosecutor, I'd be making a motion <laughs> to have Donald Trump be given a gag order so that he can't go out and incite riots and, and crowds. Um, this is and we're also in very uncharted water now because he's also a presidential candidate. And so how right. do we in the United States, which has such a robust freedom of expression tradition, how do we delineate between what is protected speech and what is dangerous speech? And how does that intersect with an ongoing criminal investigation and legal proceeding? It is. I mean, it's always loaded. What next? I mean, I understand now that this goes through motions and so on, but but November, is that is that sort of the next chapter of this? Is it that far away? It's December 4th is the next court right. date. Um, and, you know, folks will file whatever motions. Eventually, discovery will be shared, which is where the prosecution will have to share the evidence that it has um you know, in its files with Donald Trump with some limitation, but they'll have to share that. Um, Donald Trump's team will file all kinds of motions, I'm sure, challenging the validity of the indictment itself and the charges itself. Um, but who knows what other kind of legal maneuvering they have in their pocket. Um, and then the judge will determine whether or not there's going to be hearings on those motions. Um, so all of this is going to take a long time. And obviously, as this case continues to wend its way through the court, um, Donald Trump at any time could enter a plea. I'm sure he will not, but he could enter a plea of guilty. He could change his plea. Um, the prosecutor could decide, oh, my goodness, we really don't have the evidence to back this case up. They could dismiss the charges. But the third and most likely outcome is that this case will eventually go to a jury. And the timing on that will be very interesting, given the specter of our next presidential election. I think right. the um, New York district attorney is hoping for a January 2024 trial date. I think the defense is going to try to push that out as far as they can into 2024. Um, and we'll see what happens. That will wow. remain to be seen. Mm-hmm. Not to mention it's going to collide right with the Republican primary as well. So all kinds of 100%. things. going. I, I, don't sus- I don't suspect you went to downtown. I don't suspect you went to lower Manhattan today. Did you avoid it? I did not go into the city today. <laughs> no. <laughs> we were watching, Between we're the- hearing clips of people getting married next door and <laughs> being caught off guard. Oh, my gosh. No, and the, the traffic and the, the road closures. I mean, it, I'm, I'm, we're laughing, but it's actually quite serious. Anytime that Donald Trump is going to have to come in for a court hearing related to this case, it really imposes a huge burden on the New York City community because streets are closed. Security is ramped up. The court really has to limit what it's doing in in terms of its normal operations. So it's kind of a big deal every time he has to be brought into the courthouse. In so many more ways than one. Jessica Henry, thank you so much for your perspective on this tonight. Uh, Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. So no mugshot today. Let's go back to New York City. No mugshot of the former president today. They didn't need to take one. I guess, you know, he is instantly recognizable. His campaign, though, did release uh, fake mugshots uh, to raise money on T-shirts. And it was it was kind of fun. they had him listed as you know six foot five, which clearly he's not. But uh, it was interesting that they, they did it. You don't often see someone who doesn't have a mugshot taken get a mock one done just to pretend they had one. Right. But. 
it made me think about the history of mugshots. And it turns out they go back, you know, to 19th century Paris. In fact, the person who kind of formalized them was back in 19th century Paris. And there is a Canadian who's quite an expert on mugshots. His name is Jonathan Finn. He's been talking about, uh, he wrote a book called Capturing the Criminal Image. And he says that mugshots are still very much with us. Even the style that was used back in late 19th century Paris is still very much the style we still use today. So no mugshot for Donald Trump today. Um, but we figured we would talk about the history of mugshots and fingerprinting. He was fingerprinted, by the way. He was fingerprinted. Uh, Jonathan Finn, again, professor, Department of Communication Studies at Wilfrid Laurier University and author of Capturing the Criminal Image from Mugshot to Surveillance Society. And he joins me now. Jonathan, thank you. Yeah, thanks very much. No mugshot here. I, I suppose, really, if the whole point is to be able to identify someone who may not be recognizable, this was not the case for uh, the former president. Yeah, exactly. Right. The original purpose of these is to help police to apprehend people who might come into the station later, give a false name or something else. Um, so, yeah, I can't imagine that happening with Donald Trump. That being said, there is a campaign image out that his team have sort of doctored of him like a, a fake mugshot. And I was struck by just how similar it would have been to a mugshot taken, you know, 140 years ago. Not much has changed since the origins of. No, nope, you're exactly right. The technology has changed um, in terms of cameras and obviously digital now rather than film based. But that same full face, frontal, head and shoulders, blank background, it's exactly the same. Thinking back to, uh, I, I gather the name I keep seeing pop up as Alphonse Bertillon, who is a French mm -hmm. criminologist, who's sort of the the godfather of, uh, of of these of these images. Yeah. So prior to Bertillon, so starting in the uh, actually early 1840s, police departments initially in France and it spread rapidly across the world started using the daguerreotype camera to take pictures of people brought into the station as camera technology advanced, what happened is police stations started to amass huge numbers of these photographs. So by the 1880s, major metropolitan areas had many thousands of images, which effectively made them useless, right? Because the idea was that police would be able to look through these books and match faces with faces. So where Bertillon comes in is he actually comes up with a classification system for how to use these photographs. So he pairs them with 11 bodily measurements. So things like, you know, middle finger length, ear length, things like that. And so what happened is you take the mugshot image, a full frontal and a profile, and those 11 measurements, and that gives you your identification record. And then you can store it and search it, like search the catalog based on those measurements. And so then you, you know, so you bring your person in, you measure them, you then match those measurements through your card catalog, pull up the identification record, and you've got your mugshot, which you can then look at the person and say, aha, you're not who you say you are, or I see you've been arrested before for a different crime. And in the whole process of, of what you call making the criminal visible, the, the, the whole idea of the mugshot and then the fingerprinting, it's part of a process that reminds someone that they've been arrested, right? There is there's a psychological element to this, I'm sure, as well. Definitely. And, you know, as, as we move into more contemporary contexts, there's kind of a public function of these things as well, right? Like, so there's the reminder, yeah, but then it also works maybe as a bit of nice PR for police to say, you know, here's here's the criminal justice system in action. We got our person, as is evidenced by the mugshot.
One of the things I found interesting, too, I mean, New York itself has a rule whereby mugshots are not meant to be released. And I think one of the big fears here was that it would be leaked uh, and therefore they would be on the hook for it. They brought new rules into place when it comes to mugshots over the years, realizing how prejudicial they can be. Yeah. And they I mean, they still so they do still float around and other states don't have the same laws as New York. And, you know, they became like crime stories and everything, a little bit of salacious content that there was a big audience demand for. So even in the early mid 1900s, you'd see these images getting out in Police Gazette and other sources like that, that are seizing on a kind of public appetite for this kind of information. I mean, I think back to the most famous ones over the years, the ones that I remember, Al Capone, clearly, John Gotti, I guess, Manuel Noriega. When you talk about this, are there ones that you point to that are specifically uh, noted over the, over, the, over the many decades? I like the early ones, like the sort of late 1800s, partly because unless I tell my students their mugshots, they're going to guess that they're family portraits. Really? Because they're, they're often these, you know, seemingly well-dressed, lovely people. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? So it kind of breaks that stereotype of that criminals look a certain way. But certainly the classic O.J. Simpson one. Right. Both Time and Newsweek published the mugshot, but Time darkened his skin tone. Right. Um, yes, of course. Right. Playing off a, a racist trope around criminality and skin color. And so that's one that always comes into the discussion, right? Both, I mean, obviously because of the, the fame of OJ, but because of the way the two media outlets treated the Im- image differently. If you think about images that have lasted the test of time, uh, they are incredibly powerful images that are very simple, right? I mean, you can think of very few images that are so simple that have, that have carry so much weight. Yeah, such tremendously different context, right? So that same image could be your student card. It could be your work ID that allows you to get in and out of your office. It could be on your passport, right? The exact same image can be used for any number of different contexts, but as a mugshot, it carries certain associations and potential consequences tied to it. The former president was fingerprinted. You were mentioning that that is also part of making the criminal visible, part of that process. Yes. And so fingerprinting um, actually supplanted Bertillon's system because it became a much easier and more efficient way to classify and search records. I'll be curious to see if Trump's prints actually hit to, to any latent prints that were found at earlier crime scenes. I don't, I of course don't think that will happen, but it's a nice thing to, yeah, to, to ponder. Into that APHIS system, they call it, if I remember my law and orders correctly uh, from those yes. days. This isn't the only uh, legal trouble he's facing. There could be a mugshot at some point, but one assumes that in the case of someone like the former president, it's not really, it doesn't really serve much of a purpose. And the risks of it leaking are probably even more important than the risks of taking it in the first place. Yeah. And I think what's really interesting about this case is that, and and other ones of famous politicians or celebrities, is that those connotations of criminality and that don't necessarily stick. You know, lots of people talking about what was going to happen if this mugshot came out or was released. Lots of people thought, well, it's going to be used to generate massive amounts of revenue for Trump and his campaign. In contrast to what we would think of as a traditional mugshot, where you think of somebody who's been caught, uh, potentially committed a criminal act. In this case, it's almost more of a, uh, would be, you know, more of a defiant pose than, than an admission of guilt. Yeah, a badge of honor to some extent. In this case, he, exactly. he's, produ- he's produced, yeah. I mean, at least someone is fundraising off an image of him that has been produced. It's rare you see someone not have a mugshot taken and then produce one of themselves for 
for fundraising purposes, I would think. Yeah, and I, and I'm you know I'm certain all of the all of the machinations of this were worked through leading up to today, right? About how how are you going to monetize and capitalize on this, and what what's the narrative we're going to put around it? Well, if you see that one that doctored one out there, remember it's uh, it dates back more than a century, nearly 150 years now. Jonathan Finn, thank you so much. Great, thank you. Perhaps you recognize that from hockey tournaments. That's the Finnish national anthem they were playing in in Brussels today because NATO officially welcomed Finland on its 74th birthday. NATO's, that is, welcomed NATO, uh, Finland rather, as its 31st member. And it kind of completely shifts the realignment of Europe's post-war security landscape. It was triggered by Moscow's invasion of Ukraine, and its membership doubles Russia's land border with the Security Alliance. Finland's president called it a great day for his country and an important day for NATO. The era of uh, military non-alignment in our history has uh, come to an end. A new era begins. Certainly. Uh, joining me now with more on this is Thomas Hughes. He's a postdoctoral fellow at the Canadian Defence and Security Network. Thomas, thanks for your time tonight. Not at all. Delighted to join you. Thanks for having me. It is a momentous day. I mean, I realized, of course, it was NATO's 70, it's NATO's 74th birthday today, but to welcome a 31st member, especially one that for so long had uh, stood on the sidelines of all this, is uh, is fascinating. What does it mean for the Alliance? It is a, a huge boost to the alliance i would suggest finland as a as a partner will be uh, a significant benefit both in terms of the military capability that it brings and also just the uniqueness of of finland as a partner its geography its uh, domestic politics it will be uh, a great benefit and i'm sure a, a, a voice of of reason a helpful partner for the alliance it doubles NATO's land border with Russia, which in of itself yes. is interesting. You, of course, also look into Arctic issues. Finland is a vibrant Arctic nation. It does seem to bring a lot to a modern NATO, especially in its understanding of, of the region and of Russia. Absolutely. Uh, and I think Russia's reaction to Finland joining NATO has been particularly interesting. I think, in a sense, Russia has sort of flip-flopped, for want of a better word, on how it has uh, addressed Finland joining. We, we went from Putin suggesting last year that Finland joining NATO was was essentially what they had anticipated, expected. Finland was not a country that they had any uh, particular territorial differences with, that this was natural uh, engagement, but you know they would conduct some countermeasures. Um, but in, in, in a sense, it, it felt normalized, if you like. Whereas what we've seen uh, in the past 24 hours is a, is a rather more robust response in, in terms of, of discourse anyway, talking about this as being a, an encroachment on Russia's security. So the way in which Russia will react um, to this over the next 6, 12 uh, months and beyond will be uh, really interesting to watch. And in terms of that land border, I think that's important, but we shouldn't make too much uh, of that land border. The one major strategic benefit, if you like, uh, for this, for NATO, is that that land border does give greater or easier access to um, strategically significant areas of, of Russia, particularly in Murmansk. But I think for me, the, the key benefit of, of Finland in that sort of operational capacity is going to be in the Arctic. We know the Arctic is a, an area of huge interest and huge identity concern for Russia as well. So having Finland as an even closer partner in the Arctic is going to reshape the way that defense is structured there, I believe. 
certainly in Canada, that's uh, that's a huge direct impact of Finland joining the alliance for for Canadians, which is that that idea of, of Arctic sovereignty and how it's all going to play out in the next uh, 25, 50 years as things change uh, in the region. Uh, it was, it's interesting you mentioned it because I was always a little bit surprised by how sanguine the Kremlin was about about Finland joining NATO. Uh, and then today we saw a little bit of the, I mean, what what would be expected, right? When you see the flag being raised, you expect Moscow to be a little more belligerent about it all. But their reaction compared to what it has been for Eastern Europe was was very interesting in terms of just how non-confrontational it was. Yeah, absolutely. And I think for um, the states like Finland and Sweden and Norway, uh, there is a concern for Russia because of proximity uh, and political alignment, but there isn't that same degree of uh, social connection, uh, if you like, or at least perceived social connection um, to the former Soviet states. And that creates a very different intended relationship between the different countries. So I think it was really important to, to consider that that statement from Putin about the the absence of territorial differences with Finland. And when you look at how Russia has framed its invasion of Ukraine, those territorial differences are a, a significant part of that. So I think Russia, as you suggested, it they had to respond in some way today. They had to discuss NATO as a uh, as a threat because that is how they have been framing NATO over the past few years. And the the challenge will be uh, for NATO now to continue to demonstrate to its own members, in particular, that it is a defensive alliance. It doesn't intend to harm Russia. It is there for the defense of its members. And it's not an easy task to demonstrate that you are only defensive whilst also representing a a robust military capability. And that's a a fine line that they will will have to tread. And we will also have to make sure that when we understand and listen to Russia's comments, that that we can differentiate between what is genuine concern and, and what is political bluster, if you like. We're still waiting on Sweden, aren't we? I, get, I gather the Hungarians and the Turks are standing in the way of of that of that ascension. But one more member to come, a thirty second. Yes, absolutely. And I'm not as confident as I was that Sweden will be joining in uh, the the very near future. But it it does feel like it's inevitable uh, that that will occur. I think the the real holdout on this for the moment is is Turkey. They've suggested that they want to see uh, a little bit more action from from Sweden on their anti-terrorism policies in particular. And were that to occur, then I I think we would see Sweden uh, exceeding quite quite quickly. Uh, It also remains to be seen, and this is speculation at at this point, but it remains to be seen what changes may occur following uh, Turkey's elections, uh, which I believe are coming up in May. And uh, following those elections, that might allow Erdogan a a little bit more uh, latitude uh, for for dealing with with Sweden. uh, And perhaps we'll see a little bit more acceleration to, to come on that. And to think of NATO at 74, uh, before we began uh, speaking, we were talking a little bit about um, the fact that five years ago, Afghanistan looked like things were falling apart very quickly, and inevitably they did. Uh, The alliance looked like it was searching for a mission, searching for a purpose. Donald Trump was president of the US, not a big fan of any military alliance or any alliance period. It looked like NATO was, was heading downwards. And all of a sudden, here we are five years later, new member, new member comes in on its 74th birthday. It feels like NATO has found its purpose once again. How how fleeting might that be, do you think, or has it re-established, Has it found its firm footing again? My interpretation of the, the current environment is that this has given a, a boost to NATO in the way that I don't think this is going to be fleeting. I think this has 
required the alliance to to come together in a way that it perhaps hadn't done for for some time. And I think that that has created a, a common foundation. I think part of that conversation over the previous years has been, well, do we actually see a genuine threat to NATO members in in Europe? Certainly not the case. Its focus can can properly return to to Europe uh, and that threat from from Russia. And of course, that will also depend on how the conflict with Ukraine evolves in the in the coming years. What sort of Russia will we see at the end of that conflict will dictate to to a greater extent, I think, what NATO will have to look like in Europe as well. Thomas Hughes, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. So much happened today. Legal history set in Manhattan as the former president appeared in court. Uh, Arrested and charged, the first president either sitting or former to face that. Uh, We talked about NATO welcoming a new member today on its 74th birthday. Finland, now officially a part of NATO after decades of non-alignment, driven there really by a, a simple calculus about Russia. A simple calculus. Russia invaded Ukraine. Finland after many, many decades of non-alignment thought, that's it. We're going to change the calculus here. Strengthen numbers. Russia's unpredictable. This will be better for us. And off we go. Um, And, you know, we haven't talked about Ukraine much of late. There's been lots going on. But you will have noticed perhaps in last week's budget that we are lending another $2.4 billion to Ukraine to help the country cope with the economic fallout from Russia's military assault, from the invasion, the further invasion. That brings the total support for Kyiv to more than $8 billion since the war began, Canadian aid. Uh, Again, that new aid was included in the budget announced a week ago today. Now, it comes nearly a year, and this is, you know, the war has been going on for more than a year now, so there are anniversaries that happen every once in a while as we proceed. And the anniversary this week was the anniversary of what happened in Bucha. Um, it was actually late last week or over the weekend. Bucha, you'll remember, was that community outside of Kiev where uh, evidence of alleged war crimes, of massacres were uncovered after Russian forces were driven out of that city. It was uh, one of the more, most, at least early and most grim findings of so many grim findings in that country and areas that Russia has been pushed out of. Um, but one of the things that they've done there since the nearly from the outset is they've moved to rebuild quickly. Rebuilding has many purposes. It is part necessity. People need places to live. Road needs to, roads need to be built and so on or rebuilt. It is part defiance. It is to show Russia that Ukraine will continue despite ongoing bombardments. And so areas that have been cleared of Russian occupation, even though missile attacks continue, the rebuilding continues because that is a symbol of being able to go on. Um, So the city that became a symbol of the atrocities of that war has also become a symbol of its resistance. And we've been, you know, there's a lot of money being poured in to try to make sure that this happens apace at the same time as trying to support Ukraine's economy, which, of course, has been devastated by this war. Uh, There is a Canadian there, Don Bowser. He was a longtime employee of the Canadian government. He spent decades as an anti-corruption and governance expert working with governmental, non-governmental, and international agencies. He's back in Kyiv these days because he's part of something. He's founded something called the Support to Ukrainian Recovery Initiative. It's an NGO focused on recovery projects in formerly occupied areas of Ukraine, such as Bucha. And Don joins me now from Kyiv. We've had on the show before. Don, welcome back. 
Well, welcome. Thanks. Tell me a bit about this trip. What was the, I mean, you're back there now. You've, you've been working on this on this initiative to try and rebuild parts of Ukraine that have been liberated. We think of immediately, obviously, of, of Bucha. There's been a lot of, I mean, normally we associate rebuilding with when a war ends, but here the rebuilding is going on at the same time. Yeah, well, I mean, the, the issue is that, of course, many people are homeless or had their property destroyed or their business destroyed during the war. And uh, we're one year in and people need to get on with their lives. What we see in terms of the Kiev region is that uh, rebuilding is well underway. So I went through Bucha on the anniversary and Irpin and Gostomol and the areas outside of Kiev. And you would hardly know that there had been a war there for many parts of town. Some parts of town are still heavily destroyed. And so what we see is that people since this summer or last summer, I should say, they've been putting uh, things back together and people going on with their lives. In other parts of the country, not so much. So we see in Kherson in the south, it's a no-go zone for most people. Mykolaiv is still heavily damaged. Chernigov and the Sumy regions are starting to recover, but still there's a lot of work to do. So really, uh, the capital is benefiting from the fact, I mean, there are still there's still attacks. You were telling me earlier there are weekly attacks still, uh, but yes. the idea is to continue to rebuild despite this, both as because, as you mentioned, the necessity, but also as an act of defiance. Yes. And so what the Russians were doing through the winter were targeting the heating plants and the electricity plants in an attempt to destroy morale of Ukrainians. The fact is, is that people recovered. Now it was announced today that there are no parts of Ukraine that are reducing energy supplies during the day. So we're back to normal. I went down to Odessa and Odessa was the worst hit. And now it's the the, the power's back on um, and it's been a mild winter. And so the, the heating systems are back on as well. Most cities have recovered from those attacks, but still they come, still targeting the same things. Part of what you're doing is trying to to make sure that money gets to where it needs to go to. But in terms of, of the whole process, how is it working? Because you've mentioned that even compared to the Marshall Plan, this is a huge amount of money to both find and then process and then get onto the ground. Yeah, this is the, going to be the biggest reconstruction effort anywhere in the world. So the risks to it are also the biggest in the world. So I'm working on multiple things. Besides my NGO, I also am helping out with strategic communications, mm-hmm. trying to strengthen the integrity system within the Ministry of Defense. So different aspects of work, all focused on making sure things don't go south in terms of where the money goes. Because if that happens, the consequences are enormous. The donors themselves, the international community, understand this, but really haven't put in any measures in place. And we knew this from the reconstruction efforts in the Donbass during the first part of the war. So we saw the same things, is that it's critically important to build in early these systems that mitigate the risk for corruption and deal with corruption issues straight away. Otherwise, you start to lose people in terms of believing in the government. And at this point, it's critical that everybody, you know, is is very much on the government's side. I suppose in the, at this point, we're still in that phase where the government, because of what's happening on the ground, the government's still getting the benefit of the doubt. But that would, would quickly evaporate, even in places like, I imagine in places like Irpin and, and, and Bucha, if the idea was that money was disappearing. Well, as long as they see the results. So in Irpin, you see a massive rebuilding program. Do we know what the mayor's up to? No, we don't. But the fact is, people see daily that, you know, immediately after the tanks were cleared away, 
in Bucha and Erpin, they started repairing the streets. The fact is, is that anywhere in the world where you see government failing to deliver to the people, it's going to erode trust. So what we've seen so far in terms of the rebuilding, because a lot of eyes are on it, is that we haven't seen the case of where in the reconstruction aspect of it, there has been scandals. And that's one of the things that that needs to be strengthened in terms of the system that's in, in place now. Don, $2.4 billion in the latest budget from Ukraine, from Canada to Ukraine. What's the sense there about, about Canada's efforts? Again, I think I ask you this question every time we talk, but it's hard yeah. to know what the, what the view is from Kyiv on what's happening from Ottawa. Well, $2.4 billion is probably about a week's worth of the uh, deficit within the government if we're talking military supplies. You know, so we the last time around we promised, I forget how many thousands of artillery shells, which were about a week's worth of expenditure. Uh, the reality on the ground is that the military needs uh, more and more artillery shells and artillery systems. We need new barrels and everything else to keep the fight going. This is primarily an artillery fight. The problem that we have in the currently within Western supplies is the cupboards are, are empty in many countries. They've sent what they have. Other countries that still have large supplies are hesitant to use everything up. And production across Europe and in, and in North America is very slow. So the, the numbers of artillery shells, for example, that are needed by Ukraine, we're talking millions are, are still needed. So what is 2.4 billion? Well, you know, in the large scale of things, it's a very small amount of money. Our current efforts in terms of reconstruction are fairly limited. Other countries have picked a location and they're focused their energies on that. Our Canadian priorities are not focused on, on reconstruction. It's focused on other issues. You know, in, in essence, yes, it, it helps, but and it seems like a lot of money, but it's really not. The fact is, is that Ukrainians are fighting and dying for a country. They're fighting against the Russians who have declared Canada an enemy. And we've seen the effect of intelligence operations in Canada, just like we have with the Chinese. So they're fighting our enemies for us. So anything that we give to them, which also goes towards our own economy, because we're giving things, but at the same time, we're also replenishing our own stocks, right? For example, the Rochelle armored yeah, vehicles that we're point. doing, right? So, I mean, the same thing as other countries have seen, any assistance we give to Ukraine is is not a massive loss because in the end, it actually, we can uh, use our defense industries to help Ukraine. So it's actually a win for Canada. So we haven't, other countries have already said, we're going to focus on this part of the country and help rebuild a, a little part of it because that simply makes sense. And we haven't done that yet. We haven't bothered to, reconstruction is not within our priorities, it seems, at this point. No, we, we do have a large-scale project that does a little bit of that, but, you know, our our uh, external affairs is focused on, on other issues. So, I mean, the need is massive still. The need in terms of energy supplies is massive. So there's a lot more that we could be doing. I would uh, say if anybody out there has uh, got a, a window factory or a door factory or any other building materials, I know plenty of places that you, that you can send them to. You know, I mean, this is the sort of view that many people have in Western countries is that our this aid to Ukraine is endless. Well, not because it's actually going back into our own pockets. Right. Right. So a lot of it is buying from our own industries and, and sending it. Uh, it's great. I'm glad that Canada is contributing. But of course, you know, the, the view on the street is that there's 
just so much more need, especially in terms of weapons being delivered. Yeah, I, I mean, Canada's in a position where there's just not much it can do, right? I mean, there, there's certain things that Canada, we just, we just don't have. Unfortunately, there's a lot of, lot of, a lot of finger pointing there, but simply don't have them to give, right? I mean, that's been, we saw that crop up a lot. It's interesting, though, that, that again, I mean, I, I, that on the ground, the needs are such that you need, it feels like you need a very, fluid foreign policy when it comes to or aid policy when it comes to a country like Ukraine right now. And sometimes it feels like ours is a bit is a bit rigid that way. Yes. Yes. We're very fixed in in the things that we focus on and they may not be actual to the current conditions. Right. So, I mean, this has been one of the things where it would be great if there was a higher degree of flexibility in this. And yes, on the question of why don't we send more weapons? Well, if we had them, uh, we had yeah. 20 operational leopard tanks, and now we're sending eight here. It's not like we need them. I, I don't think that Greenland's going to make a move on us anytime soon. The reality is, is that we've underspent in the defense sector for many decades. And, mm-hmm. and even Afghanistan wasn't a wake up to the need for this. And all countries are now gearing up across Europe because they realize that this chronic underspending has now caused real problems for them. We're heading into the spring. There's been talk about a spring offensive on Ukraine's part. Uh, there was the meeting between Xi Jinping and, and Vladimir Putin in Moscow not long ago. The floating of some sort of nebulous idea of some sort of peace deal brokered by Beijing. What's the what's the the, the mood on the ground in, in Ukraine? Does this feel like this is going to be a forever thing now? Or is there any sense that there is some kind of end game going on here? Anything that's not different than it was six months ago? Well, no, I mean, it's very simple. If uh, if Russia wants to have peace, they leave Ukraine. Then we have peace. The mood is, uh, I mean, everybody survived the winter. So, I mean, you know, most days in Kiev, you wouldn't even notice there was a war on uh, as the hipsters on their e-scooters go down the street to buy a flat white at their local cafe and things. I mean, the resiliency here is incredible. But the fact is, people are going on with their lives, their daily lives. What's going on in the conflict zone, of course, vastly different, and the grind that is there and the sacrifices. And, you know, what has been really interesting on this trip, seeing the innovations that are going on and in, in Ukrainians putting new things onto the battlefield. It's just amazing. You know, there's currently one project that does uh, virtual training on heavy weapons in order to be more effective in terms of using heavy weapons. And that's by a Canadian uh, diaspora who's here, who's been here for many years. Plus, you have things like Aero Rezvitka, the drone battalion. And it's an NGO, but they are one of the leading factors in terms of getting intelligence from the battlefield. And they've been doing it since 2014. So you see these young Ukrainian IT guys. Uh, and other people who are being extremely innovative. And what happened this week was the NATO Innovation Board met in Brussels, and essentially the Secretary General instructed all member states to work with these Ukrainian organizations like Euro Rezvitka, with the, the, uh, the drone guys, because they are being far more innovative on the battlefield than NATO has been. So there's a lot of lessons that, that can be learned here. And I think people are getting that message now is that this is a Ukrainian fight. It's time for the West to sort of park the arrogance and acknowledge that there's a lot that we can learn from the Ukrainians now. Don, as always, thanks so much. No worries. Talk to you soon. 